HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by greatbrewers.com, a social media marketing platform dedicated to promoting the world's great brewers and the beers they create. For more information, visit greatbrewers.com. Hey, 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 welcome to Beer Sessions Radio on the Heritage Radio Network. This is November 2014, and we're doing a special recording at the Spiegelau Showroom in Manhattan. Uh, we're debuting the new Spiegelau Wheat Glass. We have special guests Laura Bell and John Mallett from Bell's Brewery, amongst other guests. So thanks so much for joining us. Thanks to GreatBrewers.com for being our sponsor. This is a special recording uh, in November 2014. So some of our special guests, Matthew from Spiegelau, uh, this is the third uh, specialized beer glass that you guys have made. Tell us a little bit about this this one in particular, because we have the stout glass and the IPA glass that was really successful. Um, the wheat glass uh, was an original idea that came along once we identified some of the major craft beer styles. Uh, really, it's a timing issue trying to scale these things through one at a time because it takes almost a year uh, for each each glass project. Um, but for sure, wheat is, uh, I don't know whether it, I would consider it emerging, but certainly it's understood outside of the United States as well. So that had a particular appeal for us um, because Shapikala is a global brand. And so we're trying to elevate this concept of American craft beer around the world. So this was kind of a bridge beer style, similar to stout. Uh, to kind of get the global attention uh, to the subject. So we have some of the leaders in craft beer in New York here with us. James Tyus, a Cicerone, Brendan Woodcock from Taurus and Luxus and a Cicerone, and Justin Phillips from Beer Table Pantry. I mean, you guys, you know, you're at the top of your game in New York City. What's the importance of glassware in, in, in craft beer? James, you want to? Well, I mean, we when we look at craft beer, there's so many different styles, and each style has a specific characteristic, uh, which you want to somewhat highlight. And I think the development of glassware is something that is able to kind of match that and maximize uh, what we get out of the experience. You know, Brendan, you took the Master Cicerone exam. Do they have any, any part of that dedicated to glassware or tasting aspects of glassware? Certainly various parts. Uh, when we're talking about styles, you probably want to mention glassware because, of course, the impact of each style is going to be uh, changed by the glassware. And uh, then uh, there's also a beer and food section, so that as well, you, you choose the appropriate glassware. Presentation is important, not just for the flavor and aroma, but also for the perception. So it was definitely part of the test. And Justin, you, in your old beer, beer table, you were always a, a leader in glassware, and you, you did you poured large bottles into glassware. You, you were not the typical pub. 
Um, why was that such an important part of, of your early place? I always, I mean, honestly, for me, it wasn't a science. I, I don't have a 500-year history of <laughs> developing <laughs> glassware or anything, but for me, it was all, always about experimenting and trying new things and seeing what works and, you know, using glassware for the sake of um, <clears throat> experiencing beer at different temperatures and things like that. So these are our beer experts, and we're here with the leading glassware guy in the world, Matthew. But, but John and Laura, you guys from Bell's Brewery, we love having you in New York. The, the rollout in February was one of the, the best things that happened in New York City in a long time yeah. for craft beer. So tell us a little bit about uh, how you guys got involved with uh, working with Spiegelau on this project. Sure. So um, Matt actually contacted me. I think we might have met and chatted about it. And um, Matt and I went out to do a workshop in Portland just to check things out, see what this was all about and had the opportunity to, to taste through a lot of different glassware with a number of different beers from um, around the country. And it was very enlightening and something that I think we both got excited about to to see where this led to. That's partially accurate. I was stalking you, actually. Being a huge fan of Bells. But yeah, we, we did connect at the Craft Brewers Conference and talked about it and, and just, just thrilled that there was an interest and we were mm -hmm. able to uh, to get the project completed. Why was wheat the next class? Because you had IPA and stout, totally different styles. Yeah, well, we, I mean, we started with IPA because when we hatched the idea to do varietal-specific or style-specific beer glasses, I mean, IPA is a dominant style within uh, the craft beer category. So to us, it was like making a, the first Cabernet Sauvignon glass for the wine industry. You know, it seemed like a logical first choice. Um, the reception was huge. We, we rolled the dice. We weren't sure whether people were going to look at this and say, what is this weird-looking glass, and would, would, would anybody use it? turns out to be our number one in terms of velocity uh, skew for sales at retail. I mean, it's unbelievable. I mean, now sells our Cabernet Sauvignon glasses, so it's a real kind of um, testament to the power of craft beer, first of all. Um, uh, the stout, like I said, we, we were getting input from outside the United States, our friends in the UK in particular, and in Scandinavia, where the style is, is huge and we do big business. Uh, so it was a logical second step. And then wheat, for me, uh, is a personal favorite. Um, I think it's under underpromoted, really. Uh, Bell's, as I was telling Laura last night at the event, uh, is truly the leader in the field. The first time I drank an Oberon was a, tr a transcendental experience, to put it mildly. Made me a lifelong fan of the brewery. Um, and I think that its its time is, uh, is come. It's just a great beer. You see um, uh, people gravitating towards not necessarily over-the-top and intense flavored beers, and this is a great avenue to enter craft. John, what do you think about this glass? I mean, this is your, uh, what is the winter white ale from Bell's. Tell us about how the beer tastes to you, and, and how, is it different in this glass than in other glasses? Yeah, well, beer tastes good, uh, but that's not <laughs> usually a problem for me. You know? <laughs> um, do I think the uh, the beer tastes different in this glass? Yeah, I do. I absolutely do. You can hear that little tinny special. <laughs> um, no one's jealous. I, you know, I'm a, I'm a huge glassware nerd to begin with. My, uh, as my wife said the other day, you know, you're really fussy about glassware. And I said, well, I, we're not connected with this. And I thought, I am. And I think the reason for that is that so much of uh, uh, my beer drinking experience is engaged in all the senses. Um, somehow drinking beer out of a can, although I'll certainly do it, uh, you put it in a glass and you get to see the full range of, of, of senses, color, uh, even just the sound of that, uh, of clinking glasses together is great. Let's do that again. That's right. really awesome. <laughs> so you can. So, what is it about these glasses, Matthew, that, that makes them sound like that? Well, this, I mean, is this a, isn't like a typical Libby pint glass. No, no, no. This is it's lead-free crystal. It's crystalline. It's a wholly different physical material than you would see in a typical pint glass. So we can blow it very, very thin, which is good because the thinness helps preserve the temperature of the beer, thus uh, preserving the CO2 in the mouthfeel. 
um, but it has a strength because it's pure crystal, so it can uh, bounce. It's uh, flexible. So this is what gives it this kind of sound. And when it's full and you clink together, there's no clink. There's more like a whoosh kind of uh, sound. It's pretty wild. It's pretty awesome. I mean, it's pretty cool having you guys here. I mean, for John, like, you got a book coming out about malt. Um, yeah. You know, how did you get started? I mean, you, you're... And why are you guys identify with wheat beer? You know, which is pretty big questions. I think the reason why, you know, Bell's got started with wheat beer is that, you know, Bell's has been around for... Larry Bell was certainly pioneer in the whole craft segment. And he was making beers that were wholly unlike any other beers out there. I mean, beers were hazy. They weren't filtered. People kind of looked at that and said, like, you know, beers are hazy. It isn't right. And somehow they started selling, and somehow they started doing okay. And I think that when you make that style, when you make a style of beer that's unfiltered, you're picking up much more from yeast. You're leaving a lot of protein there, and it all builds to this beautiful body. It builds to this rich, round, smooth uh, experience. Um, The place where, you know, with... with, uh, one of the main beers that we do is Oberon. That beer was originally started out as Solson. And that beer has a significant amount of wheat. But unlike Bavarian wheat beers, it is not using a phenolic uh, strain of yeast. So it's kind of a clean ale that, that captures and picks up and enhances some of the hop character. And so this is a hoppy wheat beer. So you've just got this full range of, of wheat flavor, which I think of as being slightly bready. We've got this great uh, hop. Uh, the, the hops in that beer are a little bit of citrus to them, have a sort of citrus character, and then the body just brings that whole thing together. It's a really delicate yet full beer. And uh, for whatever reason, that beer has done very well uh, with the craft beer community. And it's been interesting, um, you know, every, it's, it's our seasonal beer, so our summer seasonal comes out the week before opening day of baseball and goes through Labor Day, and people, you know, get so excited about it. It's the sign of the end of winter in Michigan. Um, Oberon opening day is what we call it, and people take off work. We throw midnight release parties, and it all developed because that's what our, our, our customers asked for it. People call me and, and they say, how did how did you guys do this? And I say, we had amazing people that got enthusiastic about our beer and really drove it. We just tried to jump on and, and, um, and take care of them. So that organic enthusiasm for wheat beer is something that we're super proud of as well. What do you guys think about bells and and their wheat beers? Oh, they're, uh, I mean, (laughs) what can I say? They're a tasting expert. John didn't already say, I mean, talking about Oberon is, is great. Uh, also, you know, we're, presently drinking the winter white uh that's nice i'm actually I, one of my favorite things about wheat beer is honestly the presentation which is why it's great to have a good glass for it but uh the lacing on wheat uh, mm-hmm. it's like a little bit more protein so uh hangs on the glass longer the head retention is a little better you can usually tell it's bright white and so it just it just looks sexy um Forsman has that uh winter white oberon quite a few. It's really nice. I'll tell you, full disclosure, this is a special recording. It's 10 o'clock in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> it's our first beer of the day. Yesterday we were at the Spiegel Isle Wheat Glass Tasting at the Brass Monkey in the Meatpacking District, and then some of us went over to uh, a special uh, Michael Jackson uh, Beer and Spirits Inspired Tasting of New York State Products at Brooklyn Brewery. So it's our first beer of the day, and I'm, it's actually a good first beer. So I was thinking, what are we going to have for breakfast? Yeah. And yeah. I think this would be my breakfast beer. <laughs> have you done that many times, John? Have you had your wheat beer for breakfast? 
Of course, it's a very it's a huge <laughs> tradition. I mean, ten o'clock is uh, the traditional time in Bavaria to have you know Weissbier and and uh, Weisswurst. You know, so I'm sure that over in uh, all this week there've been people eating eating and drinking wheat beer and and, and good sausage products over in uh, over in Germany. In, it's our, in our factory, they're drinking beer and eating sausage <laughs> at 10 o'clock in the morning. And wearing lederhosen. <laughs> True. <laughs> we should do that more. <laughs> Come on over anytime. <laughs> and that's, so the Oberon opening day, that sounds like a lot of fun. It's nuts. Um, I've thrown a, a party, our midnight release in East Lansing. Um, I went to Michigan State, so that's kind of where I go back to, to hang. And um, there's lines out the door, and sometimes it's snowing, and those kids are just so excited. Not kids, I guess. The you know, students are excited, and, you know, midnight hits, and we run through two half barrels, you know, in half an hour. And that's know. a school night, And isn't that's it? a school night, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> One night it even fell on Easter, and we, we sold it out. So it's, the, the enthusiasm's pretty fun. Um, there's people waiting at Bell's at 9 a.m. on Monday morning to, to get the first taste, and um, it's, it's a super exciting day, so... I, I live in Western PA, and at the end of the season, there was a wild run on on your product. I mean, I was like, I'm trying to get the last three cases, four cases, calling around, and we found one. I'm, I had four cases at a place called Banksville, and I took them all with me. I hoarded. Well, it does taste really good in this glass. Justin, do you sell a lot of bells at, at beer table pantry? We do, yeah, pretty good amount. And and I have to admit, like, I really honestly wasn't that familiar with the brand. Of course, I knew it by name, but hadn't personally consumed that much so when it came to New York it was really exciting for me to actually get to try these things that you know I'd heard enough about and then to see just like the passion of of people even in the middle of New York City here like and your place is different you're at Grand Central so what what does the typical customer buy and how do they consume it a typical customer it's hard to say what type of person it is because it's pretty much anyone and everyone but uh, most folks buy two cold beers for the train and uh, lots of folks will have you know one standby that's like their favorite they buy that and then we try to guide them towards something new for their second beer and that's, you know, quick rotation keeps it really interesting for them. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you that these are, I've never tried this before. I had the Oberon. What are the other wheat beers that you guys make? We do an Oarsman. Um, that's a, a light tart wheat beer. And then we play around with, with wheat a little bit in some of our specialty beers. We've done a, a wheat beer series. Um, we did Wheat Love. Mallet, maybe you can talk a little more about that one if you want to. Yeah, so you know, Larry Bell, incredibly creative person, and uh, the you get these interesting directions, and and so on this particular one, it was the wheat series. He said, I had this vision that you know you can get different wheat malts, and wouldn't it be cool to make a beer with two different wheat malts in it, and then pair that with maybe two different hops, and uh, well, actually, we could use two different yeast sources as well. So this was wheat two, and. Building off of wheat two was wheat four, wheat six, wheat eight, and then came back to wheat love. And uh, <laughs> these beers were all very different, uh, but they all had this similarity in, in that that wheat character. And I think that when you're talking about wheat and what is that characteristic really, um, wheat contains more protein than barley and carries through that protein. So you get this both uh, full bodiness from the wheat, wheat itself. And you also pick up a lovely, lovely haze, and you know the, the the beer just gets like opalescent and glowing like this full moon. So I I, I really like playing with wheat a lot. We, oh, sorry, we have a beer on draft right now. So I was out um, with a couple of our brewers, and it was midnight, and uh, all of a sudden our phones all get a text, and we look, and it's from my dad, and it's you know midnight, and he says, "I want a you know eighty percent wheat beer, midnight." 
I want to call it bright size life and, and go. And so that's what we have on right now is, you know, a test batch with 80% wheat. So wheat, wheat around a lot. Wheat doesn't have a husk. Unlike barley, wheat doesn't have a husk. And so getting it through a louder ton <laughs> is a bit of a, a problem. And, uh, you know, there's some skill involved there. And 80% wheat is just kind of audacious. Yeah. And uh, it, it managed to get done, but it wasn't like uh, put the brie on autopilot and and, and go get lunch, you know. Yeah. We have a skilled brewing staff downtown. They managed to do it. Yeah. You know, like, oh, go ahead. Oh, go, you go. Oh, I was just going to say, Zeke kind of looked at his phone and was like, okay, Larry, sure, you know. When you, when you make wheat beers, are you doing something, are you malting it differently than, than barleys and, and other grains? Yeah, uh, in the malting process, you know, the malting process, steeping, germinating, and kilning finally, uh, the issue with wheat is it's got uh, no husk, so barley, when it's going through the malting process, tends to both loft a little bit better, like it keeps, you need some air circulation through there, so it stays up. Wheat, kind of like rye, kind of gets a little almost sticky and, and very dense uh, and doesn't want to go through there easily. Um, the other thing that will happen, you know, is, is it turns into a sticky mass and, and grows together. If you're not getting that airflow, then it's more difficult to make it consistently. So there is some skill involved with making wheat malt itself. Um, at that point, when you're done with making the, the, the steeping and germination part, then you're into kilning. And in that kilning phase, you can do all kinds of different things to either wheat or barley. So you could make it dark or light, or you could allow it to acidify up or not. And uh, so you have the full range of sort of kilning conditions available to you in wheat as you do in barley. Just a little bit more difficult to work with in the malt house. That's pretty awesome. This is a great little first segment. I'm going to take a few minutes. We're back on Beer Sessions Radio. All right. So you like good beer. Whether you're a craft beer pro or just had your first sip of an IPA, GreatBrewers.com is your number one beer resource on the Internet. GreatBrewers.com bridges the gap between the world's great brewers and the consumers who enjoy their products. With so much information and misinformation out there, GreatBrewers.com focuses on education and leaves no stone unturned. Take the Great Beer Test on their website and browse through an extensive product catalog. Download their mobile beer cloud app, which includes a GPS beer finder, a beer sommelier, and descriptions for over 5,000 different brews. What are you waiting for? Back up that passion for craft beer with some solid information and education. Visit GreatBrewers.com today. Hey, hey, hey. Welcome back to Beer Sessions Radio on the Heritage Radio Network. This is a special recording, November 2014. We're at the Spiegel House Showroom in Manhattan, New York City. So we got some great guests here, uh, John and Laura from Bells, Matthew from Spiegelau, and some of our beer experts. So uh, Justin Phillips from uh, Beer Table, what were you just talking about? The, oh, the mid-segment you know, chatter was pretty interesting. Laura was just saying last night that they've been traveling a lot, and I know they're, they're here briefly, but I was curious to know how long they're going to stay in town. Yeah, so we're kind of in and out. We had some travel um, uh Travel complications over the last couple of days, and finally the, made it here. The, pl- the plane caught fire. <laughs> it's canceled and late, and it was you know pretty humorous. Uh, but John and I do well traveling together through that. So um, yeah, we're up in Michigan's Upper Peninsula earlier this week. We opened a, a small brewery up there, so did the grand opening, and then came to New York City. It's a little bit of a culture shock, I'd say. There's a lot of loyalty for your beer, isn't there? It's, it's, um, there is, and it's impressive and overwhelming, and sometimes I try to wrap my head around, you know, how people feel about it, and it's a little bit challenging, um, because it's so special, I think. 
Go ahead. I was just the, you, you mentioned a new brewery. Is mm-hmm. that up Traverse City? No. Okay, so like, those it's of you who can't hand, see, right? so right, so here's our hand, right? Here's Michigan, here's the Upper Peninsula. It's here in Escanaba, just on um, Lake Michigan. So it's a small 20 barrel brew house, and it's called Upper Hand Brewing. We're making all different beers, different brands, and it's a, a fun project to step away from Bells a little bit and try something different. Well, that's great. So the first segment, John, you were talking about how you malt uh, the, the wheat for, for the wheat beers. Um, you have a book coming up, The Malt, The Practical Guide, uh, Practical Guide for Field to Brew House. Um, tell us about, about that and how that book came about. Sure. Uh, the, book, the genesis of the book is that the Brewers Association, the publishing uh, segment of the Brewers Association called Brewers Publications, uh, has a series of books that they've been doing on beer elements. So this is the raw materials in beer, uh, water, yeast, hops, and malt is the last one. So they asked me if I would be interested in writing it. I thought, sure, you know, I, I, I know a lot about malt, uh, but do you know everything? And, and it would be just a good uh, codified way to go through and kind of check that off. Uh, it also, you know, I've, I've got a fairly busy job. I got wife, kids, family, and whew, I got my butt kicked, you know. Uh, but it was—it's been really good. I, I went pretty far down the rabbit hole and and learned a lot about malt, and hopefully imparted that some of that to you know everybody from a uh, somebody who's just started the home brewing to maybe somebody who's been brewing for professionally for you know twenty plus years picks something up as well. Seems that a lot more people are interested in malt, and you know some people may feel like they've had too many hops in their beer, and, and they're asking for malt for beers. I mean, you experience this a lot, James. Yeah, I mean, when you're talking. I don't want to say trends, but there's always kind of like a certain style or a certain beer that that kind of like sets the tone for whatever particular time. Uh, a while back, it was IPAs. Everything had to be, you know, four-digit IPUs or, or <laughs> however high you can go, right? Um, obviously not four digits. But uh, I think now that you've seen that trend where it's kind of like come back the other direction, you've been, I, I guess you would say session beers or low alcohol, you know, those are, those are the beers that are kind of like in taking... Take, they're setting the pace right now, I'd say. Well, it's um, eye-opening drink, drinking this wheat because I felt like for a while we, I used to drink Hefeweizens and, and some Wits, and then everyone kind of went, that palate, I feel like we were all drinking sour beers for a while. Mm-hmm. But more customers are asking me if they're, they're talking about a, a malty beer. And I don't really even know how, how to put my finger on that because there's not too many lagers that, that are available like that. And I don't know what you guys think in the market, but do you think maybe that, that wheat beers like this are, are ready for a comeback, you know, for just filling that niche? Well, absolutely. I mean, I, actually, uh, you had mentioned sours. I, I think it's still really thriving right now. Uh, while we're talking about wheat, Berliner Weiss is uh, probably, if not our most rapidly turning line, it's um, it's up there, straight with Pilsner. And uh, you know, personally, just my own preference, uh, it's not quite going all the way towards malt, but um, you know, uh, in, in somewhat lighter beers, uh, I think Pilsners are. It's, un- it's, it's funny to say from a craft perspective that they're going to make a comeback because they haven't gone anywhere. They're still dominating the marketplace. Mm-hmm. But uh, I think a lot of drinkers are coming full circle. Uh, you know, they've had the IPAs, they've had the stouts, and now they want to come back to something that's, like, crafted well, balanced, appropriate amount of each ingredient, you know, everything kind of in harmony. And I, I, I mean, just kind of a little bit on that uh, as well, the malt part is just that I think what's exciting, too, is you have, like, you know, this new breed of craft, well, I don't know, like, you know, small batch of maltsters. And mm-hmm. so you're going to start seeing a lot more characteristics coming out of those particular raw materials, you know, expressing themselves in the finished product. You know, so we're going to see so, uh, something close to, like, terroir for, for craft beer. John, um, as you've, like, made beers and, and wheat beers in particular, did you look to any other styles, like German wheat beers or anything as inspiration? 
I'll drink anything, man. <laughs> <laughs> or is it just Michigan inspired? I mean, no. I mean, uh, I, I think that uh, you, you know, as you drink, as you drink around the around the world, um, you notice certain flavors. You think like that's a that's a really interesting place that that brewer started to go. Do I want to take that a little further? Do I want to incorporate some element into that? And you know, I think a good example of that is the the Oarsman that that we've got. Uh, Oarsman. Uh, it was a beer that. The, the vision for that really came on a hot summer day at a beer festival when somebody was trying to, you know, hand you a 10-plus percent alcohol, you know, uh, as you say, quadruple-digit right. BU beer, and, you know, try this, and you think, God, I just need a, I just need a, a rotary tongue scraper about now because my my palate's damn near shot and, and a, you know, half in the bag. <laughs> So looking at that beer, trying to think about a beer, what what could work? What could work as this great like palate cleansing thing? And that comes back to German wheat styles. And the German wheat style of uh, Berliner Weiss uh, has got a really nice uh, tart acidity to it. And so we kind of played with that and and changed it around a, a fair amount. We were not trying to make a, a Berliner Weiss, uh, but came up with something kind of wholly unique. And and it's been lovely. I mean. You know, I walk through beer festival now, and the number of brewers you see that are just like making a beeline over there to have you know have a quick little palate cleanse and, and a delicious beer at that. I think wheat brings a lot of functionality to that. So I don't know that that's kind of a rambling answer to your question. Well, that's we're kind of rambling. It's okay. <laughs> Justin almost knocked over the yeah. table. We're in this, this showroom <laughs> at Spiegel. If, if, can people come here, Matthew, and visit? Um, yes, it's open to the public during our trade weeks, which is uh, the second week of April. It's called New York Tabletop Market, and the second week of October. Um, so this is when generally this 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 showroom supports our our restaurant on premise business in New York. So you know people like yourselves can come and check it out, do tastings. Um, but also our retail business is supported here. So, you know, our, our Bloomingdale's and our Macy's and friends like that come Let's here. Let's do a toast. If you like glassware, this is the place to come, I'll tell you. Yeah. So, hey, you hold it by the base here. Here's where you're going to get the real ring. Ooh. It's a man with experience. I know, I'd be too afraid. Like, <laughs> oh, yeah. they are, it, they it, do it feel more So they're real sturdy, you know? too, though. Yeah. yeah, well, yeah, let's talk about that because this is, whenever people see these and uh, we have three, you know, just professionals that work in on-premise trade. Uh, Spiegel is a restaurant hotel glass. I mean, we're the largest producer of fine glassware for restaurants and hotels in the world. So, I mean, every day they're used at the Four Seasons Hotels in the Peninsula. I mean, some pretty nice places. Uh, restaurateurs like Mario Vitale and Wolfgang Puck use Spiegelau. Um, of course, our brewery partners use them too. So, I mean, they're, they're durable glass. They're dishwasher safe. That's the important thing. I like to get that message out because people are like, oh, I have to hand wash them. I'm like, truth is people tend to break glasses when they hand wash them because usually they're washing them at the end of the night after they've had a couple of these um 10 percent alcohol beers or whatever <laughs> and they tend to overhandle things so it's just best to put them in the dishwasher and and uh they're good to go that's pretty awesome yeah mm-hmm. i mean I, I think this is a really it's i would describe it as a very elegantly modern design i'm, I'm just curious you know how you know how, how the process came about of designing this particular glass if you guys can talk about that Sure. So we met up in uh, Portland, actually, at one of the Rogue um, public houses, which was... It was during the Oregon Brewers Festival. Yeah, which was fun. And um, Matt and George brought a number, you know, I think it was 12 different classes, maybe. Yes. And um, glassware like I've never seen before, you know, different designs, um, very unique, very um, very special. And we brought a bunch of different wheat beers and tasted through each of them. And at the end, we'd, you know, rank them and then pull out the ones that maybe weren't as successful with wheat beer. And at the end of it, 
we ended up all unanimously saying, gosh, this glass really makes wheat beer shine. Yeah, well, we had a, we had a core bowl shape that was that was coming out of there because there's certain limitations to our machinery, just like there's certain limitations of what you can brew, there's certain limitations of what you can actually make. And I think what was most interesting was we were all kind of, were instructed to not have visual prejudices or, or, or preconceived notions of how the glass should perform and just let the, you know, the appearance, the aroma, the taste, the mouthfeel, and the finish, you know, if they're elevated, this is what you want to be supporting in the elimination process. And I think, I know for me personally, I was always looking at these types of beers as being, you know, when I relate them to wine, which for whatever reason some people do, more like a Sauvignon Blanc or Riesling, therefore needing a smaller glass. But really the small glasses, the small bowls we used were all eliminated quickly. Mm -hmm. Um, And I've been using this comparison because this bowl is quite voluminous, it's quite big. Um, and I joke about that, um, that giant radio telescope down in Puerto Rico that was in that movie where you, you need this big bowl to catch these faint you know, signals, you know what I'm talking about, and, and really amplify them. And so I think this big bowl here really helps elevate these more. We can talk delicate. to aliens when we do that. Well, <laughs> let's do that one more time. Let's do that little bump say, thing. After a couple of yeah, let's so that's the alien three or four more of these. Yeah, so look at this as like a radio telescope. I mean, a big bowl really catching these, these signals and harnessing them. Well, it, the beer is tasting better after I have more than one or two. Times. Yeah, I mean, well, is it, it, you notice it, as it sits in the glass. I mean, it just there's this kind of entire aromatic atmosphere going on in here. I mean, I'm I'm, so, I, I'm sold on on your glass room. I mean, we sat through the the IPA when you got we did the IPA glass test tasting thing years ago. You got guided us through ten or twelve different glasses, and Mr. George Rito was, was inspiring the way he talked about. You know, again, it kind of guiding us. I feel like he had already been picked out, and he guided us to the one that he wanted because he was such a he, master. He, he, it was pretty cool. <laughs> you know, I, I people can have that perception. I mean, I, I, he's my boss. I report to him, but you know, on the projects that we have, when I work with him one on one, you know, he sits here and his eyes light up, and he gets incredibly fired up about the subject. And, and let alone the the shipping charges to send Bells Oberon over to Austria more than. More than five or six times, you know, our controller's like, "Well, what's this bill?" I'm like, "Don't worry about it. It was for George Rito." <laughs> so he has a real affinity for uh, the, the the process, and now he has a real love for for the beer and the brand bells as well. I'll tell you, also talking about wheat. I mean, we're talking. I, I do think that there's more room for wheat. Um, like we said, there's there's stouts and IPAs, and people talk from more malty beers. And talking to you, John, you know, what are some other styles of of, of malt forward beers that you think consumers would like? Or the, the directions you might go. Well, I beers. think you know. I think you know. When you talk about malt, uh, it's it's the soul of beer. It's you know. You look at beer and you think, what's in there? There's water. There's hops. And there's malt, and then the yeast. So, what's that malt contributing? What are these each individual one contributing? Well, the malt contributes aside from the color, the alcohol, the extract, and the body. Malt's not doing anything. <laughs> you know, aside from those, you know, couple minor things in beer. I mean, those are huge pieces. And if you, you know, if you, as a brewer, occasionally we'll make up a hop tea to assess a hop varietal. You, know, you put hops in water, and and you get some sense of it. And it's it's you know it's undrinkable. So malt brings the balance to any beer, and just how high that's elevated uh, really kind of defines how malty that beer is. Uh, I think that also with malt, you've got this incredible range of characteristics. So, you know, everything from a dark malt, which is going to give this, you know, great astringency and beautiful color, uh, on down to something like in a Pilsner, where although the malt is sort of subdued, it's hanging out there, there's some there's some hops, but the, 
the malt component is so critical for balance. Um, so when I think about malty beer, it's funny. I actually think of some pretty pale beers, uh, beers that you may not may not think. I mean, you drink some of the the just beautiful, well constructed pilsners mm-hmm. in Germany. You know, like the German pils, where there's just this. You know, sure, there's a little hop crack there, but the that that that, that crack of the hop is really supported by this just delicious malty base. So what's a malty beer? They're all malty beers. There's my answer for you. <laughs> <laughs> all right, man. What about you guys? Uh, do you have any questions for John or Laura about you know, what they're doing? I actually did about the uh, the development of the glassware. Uh, going back to it, I kind of wanted to know, um, I mean, it's great to hear the context that Oberon was shipped over multiple times, and so it was clearly developed uh, for... Um, you know, in in context and uh, in conjunction with Bell's, but I'm wondering how much of an influence traditional wheat glassware uh, had on the development of this one. Like, typically when I picture, uh, you know, German wheat, it's mm-hmm. like Stein, mm-hmm. uh, and if I'm picturing, like, a, a Belgian whipped beer, then uh, I might have, like, a bulb way at the top and a, a skinny well, kind of... Well, it's, thank you for asking. It's a great question <laughs> because in the uh, original assortment, the first 12, I mean, we'd worked from about 60 glasses down to 12, and we included our non-workshopped uh, Hefeweizen glass uh, because people have this traditional kind of association with that glass, and it worked pretty well with a Bavarian Hefeweizen. Um, and similarly, we included a more Belgian-identified uh, shape um, but again, you know, a lot of times these glasses that exist were just created for the sake of this looks good. Um, there wasn't any type of thought to how to really enhance the beer's performance overall. And, and in many ways, in particular, the traditional Hefeweizen glass, you know, the story goes that it was a visual cue. So everyone was looking at the visuals and the longer, the longer glass to see the, the, the delicate bead and everything else. Um, but we, we included them, and, and we used not just Oberon and, and Winter Wheat. We used some other breweries, wheat beers as well. Mm-hmm. They were simply eliminated by consensus. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is kind of the message that we're bringing forward, that you know traditional shapes are great for what they are. You know, when I go to Germany and Bavaria, of course I have my own glassware, but if I'm going to walk into you know, a, a beer hall in Bavaria, I'm not going to tell them that their glass is wrong. You know, <laughs> Sometimes you, you went in Rome, you do how you do it, but when you have a chance to control what you're doing, particularly at home or in your restaurant, and you can elevate the experience, why not do it? That's true, man. Yeah, I think... Oh, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to ask, and I assume a big part of the objective was for it to be versatile, versatile among the mm-hmm. vast range of wheat beers that are out there. It has to be. Yes. I mean, because, you know, we, we had to answer this question with respect to both stout, of which there is a dizzying array of stouts within the category, same with IPA. You know, this first time around, I say we're a 500-year-old company, you know, 500 years from now, will people understand what we're doing? Hopefully. Um, but, you know, it's what we're really doing is just elevating above the current status quo, which is, by and large, the pint class, yeah. um, which is, frankly, a disaster for serving these types of beers. Yeah. Um, so above anything above that, you know, in, when we made the prototypes for this class, there was five different versions of this. Each one of them was light years ahead of what had existed before. So we are splitting hairs to get to this. Um, but yeah, it's it's really compare them against what people normally drink out of, and people understand what we're doing. Yeah. I would I mean, I'm sorry, we're going to take a short break. We're right back on Beer Sessions Radio. It is so exciting to have this new medium. Posting after the jump has been a huge part of me transitioning from being a blogger to somebody who has sort of real important conversations with people in real life. My show, I I kind of 
describe it as an audio trade magazine. I learn a ton from the guests every week, whether it's in restaurants, bars. All the hosts at Heritage all come from different perspectives. Everyone should be listening to this. If you're interested in conservation and and practical approach to renewable food sources, you know, not this big industry. Whether it's history, uh, laws, social policies of food, I think people now take food seriously, and hopefully what's on their plate will become something very special. And I feel that podcasting has a future, giving people information in a format they can really use on the go. We need your support to keep these conversations going. To donate, visit heritageradionetwork.org backslash donate. Hey, 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 welcome back to Beer Sessions Radio on the Heritage Radio Network. This is a special recording at the Spiegel Glass Showroom, and we're talking about malts and wheat and special glasses. John Mallet, the brewer from Bells. What were you going to say, buddy? Oh, what I was going to say is, you know, I, I look at functionally what's happening in a beer and, the, you know, sort of the, the whole... The way that we experience it. So, you know, if, it, if I drink beer out of a can or a bottle, then, the you know, I'm getting certain aromas and certain flavors out of there. But when you pour beer into a glass, I think a couple of very interesting things happen. So the first of which is that, you know, beer has got this mixture inside of it of uh, hydrophilic and hydrophobic components. So hydrophilic water-loving, hydrophobic water-hating. And when you pour the beer, you, you make an act of separation. The foam, because there's less water in there, there's more gas, it's got these great hydrophobic components. And these have a very different uh, very different properties. There's a little more bitterness up there. The second thing you're doing is as the beer is poured in there, the CO2 starts to break out of solution. And all the time the beer is in the glass, the CO2 is evolving. And as it's moving through the liquid column, it's grabbing a hold of a huge range of flavor active, highly flavor active, um, gases and, and bringing them up to the top of the beer. So when I pour a beer into a glass and the glass has enough space that those aromas are carried up and they are, are sort of retarded or re- retained in that headspace, I think about the difference between drinking, say, a really fine brandy, pour a really fine brandy in a proper snifter, and there's this constant evolution of flavors and you, you get this, you, you, know, you get your nose down in there and you get this aroma. That's very different than, you know, having a shot of, of, of brandy. You know, the shot of brandy, you just don't get that chance to, to have it evolve. So I think having a glass where there's actually, like, enough space for the beer to kind of relax and breathe is really key. And I, I think that's where, where this glass really uh, shines, is that it's got space to throw ahead. It's got space to, to release some of these compounds, and it's got space to just gather them. So when you get your you know, first step of putting that beer, you bring that beer right up to your mouth, and oh, surprise, your nose is in there. I mean, you're bathing your nose in these fantastic aromas. So, again, it is kind of like that radio telescope. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Justin, what were you going to say? You almost knocked over the table. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I was going to say, actually, again, I have to make an admission. The first time I tasted this beer was on Tuesday. Um, and every Tuesday, Megan and I, the manager of the Grand Central Store, sit down and we taste a few things that are new to us. And we always use, I don't you probably know the name, but the, the little wine tasting glass. It's a little stemmed, tiny glass that, I don't know. Is it, is it one of our products? It's, it's not. It's <laughs> I think what they would call it is a citation glass. This is, I don't know. It's, it's, it's from an unnamed competitor. It's a, it's a small glass. It's, it's, that's the reason we use it for tasting, because it's tiny. But tasting that beer out of that then was, is a totally different experience than tasting out of this. It's nice to have the comparison, because honestly, I didn't know quite what to think. 
I mean, um, for me, just, just at, at my place, Jimmy's number 43, we, we only have two glasses right now, which is I'm not proud of. We have a pint glass and we have a wine glass. And I always drink everything out of the wine glass. Just just going from the wine glass to the pint glass, the, the tastes are, you know, it's amazing difference. And we get stuck sometimes in terms of programs. I keep talking about how I want to get beyond using the pint glass. We used to have more of an English-style, you know, thinner, larger 20-ounce 20 20 glass. But it's kind of the industry thing, too. Like, we're kind of stuck where we're getting pint glasses and... Uh, you know, we want to break out of we'll that. We'll send a salesperson down later today. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, this is a, a thing. You know, people, when we're introducing the glass to the on-premise channel, I mean, it's people have their practical reasons for what they have. What we do is introduce the glass. It's a different, it's a different consideration for them a lot of times, specifically from a price point. Um, but when you overcome these typical objections about price and, you know, durability and whatnot, you know, and people, even if they integrate a few of the glasses slowly into a program to see how the guests react, it's really worth the investment. I mean, people really, really respond positively to, to drinking out of a nicer glass. And so talk Life's about ni- nice glass programs. How do you guys do it at Taurus and Luxus, Brendan? Well, from the very start, we just had uh, what people would call wine glasses and served beer in them. And I, I think really that everything that we've talked about, the value of stemware and um, from the presentation all the way through to uh, how you perceive the flavor really uh, informed the customer experience and we do a pretty speedy business uh, with those glasses coming in and then going out of the door. (laughs) (laughs) It's a cool design as well but I I think that beer people are happy to go to a place get a cool glass that they can say "All right, this is a beer glass uh, and something's maybe just different about that. It it, it might be shaped exactly like a wine glass but uh, they can own it. That space. I think something that's exciting for us too when I think about Oberon, it is, you know, since it's a summer seasonal, it's turned into that beer you bring camping or on the river, you know, you throw a couple cans in the cooler and um, that's definitely an appropriate way to drink it. And it's it's also nice now to have a glass that, that elevates that, that maybe changes the perception of a wheat beer is, is it is a sessionable beer. It is great to, to you know, take and integrate into your life, but having something that that elevates it, that brings it that importance, um, is something that's super exciting as well. So, yeah, and I think about, and I think just the just the experience itself, the sensory experience about drinking this beer. And I honestly, I feel privileged to be sitting at this table because I respect uh, immensely like a lot of the palates that are sitting here right now. So I'm just, I just want to throw it out. What's like, what are you guys picking up that's different drinking out of this glass versus if you're drinking out of like a regular shaker pint? Good I, question. I just throw it out, yeah. For me, it's like, uh, for me, in a lot of ways, it's like removing a layer of wax paper mm-hmm. from overpainting. Like, you know, you can kind of see the painting, but when you pull that off, when you clean the windows, it's just bam and bright. Mm-hmm. And that, for me, has been the experience with the with the beer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, I would say the, the pitch on these is becoming more clear in the third iteration, where, I mean, I think it's pretty short and sweet. This is like all about aroma for me. And that's the that's the thing. But at, Justin, a beer a beer table, you never had pine glasses. I did. You did. Yeah. For, you mean, did. We, we had, we had a, <laughs> that's why you're on the show, <laughs> man. Come on. No, 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 I never had a shaker pint, but I had you know we we had a hand pump, and so yeah, I was pouring into a twenty ounce imperial pint. So you got a, you got a for, nicer imperial for certain cascales. Yeah. No thinner. I like that tradition. I I still mm-hmm. like the idea of. I mean, I will probably never fully subscribe to this, and I mean that in the nicest way because mm-hmm. I love seeing the beautiful old traditional wheat beer glass side by side with this and that's sort of how I've always seen my menu is like contrasting the old tradition next to this mm-hmm. and I don't include shaker pie. 
<laughs> <laughs> but I do think you know this, is, this is far superior for our tasting experience, and I think this glass of of the three that have come out so far, I would actually use as a tasting glass mm-hmm. for a couple ounces of almost anything. So, and that leads me to a question: Is that something that might ever happen? Well, like a, tasting a general format? tasting glass, because there are a lot of us who do a lot of tasting, but not necessarily a lot of drinking of yeah, a whole beer. Yes, yes. Um, it's in our skunk works right now, okay. currently, um, because there's a big question out there. I mean, I know Ray Daniels well from the Cicerone, and, and we're, we were talking about it, is that, you know, especially in the industry, because people are moving from brewery to brewery or whatnot, but, you know, in a tasting room and brewery X might have this glass, and tasting room and sensory lab over here is this glass, so... You know, you go to a gas pump, there's a stamp on it for the Bureau of Weights and Measures. So you know you get when you get a gallon, you're getting a gallon. So this doesn't exist, interestingly, um, in this kind of esoteric realm of judging. And so therefore, if there's no standard, it's hard to create this concept that we are all having the same experience. So, uh, yeah, we're working on this idea. Um, but again, there's some functional issues here because... Um, it, that's not something I perceive to be a huge consumer product. And, no. you know, when we make these things, they have to go somewhere. Mm-hmm. So, um, and when we make them, we make 40000 at a time. Yeah. So we need a group well, I can't of... Well, to that, we're hoping when we, get, when we get to this, I mean, it might be a thing where we have, you know, 100 breweries take a portion of it, mm-hmm. you know, just so it's out there. So everybody knows, okay, we're all drinking out of the same glass. We're all speaking the same language. That's a long-term goal. And yeah, same I for the for retailers and for staff training and everything, it would be amazing. And yeah, yeah, and I think about it, you know, we beer tourism certainly ar- around our area has skyrocketed, and you can tell by the number of tasters that we serve on a weekend. Right. You know, it used to be a couple, and now that's all anybody gets. Mm-hmm. That's the only thing they're going to have in their first experience with Bells, maybe. We serve them in a little five-ounce straight-sided taster and sort of have something that, you know, gives them the real or, or more of a more of the, the idea of what we're going for would be would be exciting. Yes, yeah. we're working on that. But in the meantime, with, with something like this, you know, the, this wheat glass, you know, it'd be interesting that, that get comments from Laura and John on what, the, what their feelings are in the beer and how it smells and tastes, and then you can relate to their customer that, mm-hmm. hey, you may have it in a pint over this pub over here, you may have it over here, but if you want to have a virtual drinking session with me, you know, and we're, and we're you know, talking about the beer, pick up one of these glasses yeah. and drink it, and then we're speaking the same language, mm-hmm. so... Um, if you need the same. If you were like in different parts of the country, you need the same beer that was bottled on the same date in the same glass, really, to taste it. Right? Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. It's like a, it's it's sharing a, a virtual experience. And, and the and the bigger point here, and this is what drives me crazy because I'm definitely on the brewer side of the equation uh, when it comes to people and, and judging and reviewing and everything else because people are real sworn. You know, they 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 have things to say on the internet, so to speak. Um, uh, I would they say, do? Yes, they do. <laughs> but the thing that drives me crazy is that, you know, Fred from Terre Haute can drink a winter wheat in a pint glass and give it a C when uh, Jane in White Plains drinks out of this and gives it an A plus and the aggregate scores a B minus. Okay. What does that do for anybody? Nothing. Yeah. Um, let's stop rating beers online. Let's talk about yeah. things we can measure. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I'm just saying, <laughs> what I'm saying is in this particular instance, if you want to drink a Bell's beer in particular or a wheat beer and you want to have the best experience, we have experts that got together and took a long time to bring it to market. So you want to give it a weed a, a, its best chance, put it in here. That's great. Just looking at your bottle, um, John, so this date on here, 10-18-14, is that the bottle date? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that's you always put bottle on yep. dates on your bottle. Yep. That's great. We've, we've talked about that. I mean, talking about measuring, you know, I think we've had talks about, you know, whether it's Best Buy or bottle on. But, you know, definitely we can do all agree that freshness is important, too. So... 
Yeah, but that's that's unique. I mean, do, is everyone putting their bottle dates on their bottles? Is everyone doing it? Yeah. No, no. There's no there's no standard there. Um, we just feel like uh, you know, trying to be transparent to the to the to the beer lover is important for us. Absolutely, and it holds a lot of holds different people accountable for freshness of our beer as well. You know, with our wholesalers, with our retail partners, to make sure that they're you know rotating properly and, and getting that through. So, it's um. It's kind of dumb, but I think about milk, and it's always expires on. So I was like, "Wait a minute, we're drinking the t- the October eighteenth, two thousand and fourteen beer in November. That's pretty good." But <laughs> yeah, but I mean, if you have expired on a milk, when was it bottled? Like, how fresh is it really? You don't really know that, yeah. you know. With this, I think it's a very you know tangible piece. There's certain beers that we make that you know you look at that number, and you think you know only two months. Oh, why can't we get this a little older? So you know, some of those big beers want to. Uh, Want to extend their age, uh, you know. Want to want to have some time in the bottle to really pull together. So I think it's important information for the for the beer lover to know, to have access to. I mean, you guys are making great beers. I was I was reading some things about you. At one point, there was this quote: "Michigan style, unfiltered, stronger beers." I don't, does that does that resonate with you? Yeah, I've never heard that, but it makes sense to me. Yeah, sounds, sounds about right. Yeah. yeah, you know, winters are cold in Michigan. You need a lot to get through there. You know, <laughs> so yeah. And and again, you know, Larry Larry's been making unfiltered beers. You know, since since he couldn't afford a filter, I think. You know, mm-hmm. uh, and that became that's really a, that's really a mark of the styles of beers that we've made for a long time. Mm-hmm. Uh, a, just a tremendous impact from. From again the proteins that are held up in the barley or the wheat, uh, making it through all the way to the final to the final end and, and beer, uh, yeast has a flavor. Uh, these flavors become bigger. It's a more bold beer. The downside of this is that we need to handle them carefully because you know you let a beer like that go too long. It's it's not uh, you know it, it, you wouldn't want to put it in the nuclear bunker and you know assume it's going to be good you know eighty years from now. These are fragile ephemeral things and and. By managing that, that's how we get the best experience for our mm-hmm. for our beer lovers. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, no, just total agreement. You know, with the exception of Expedition and Old Ale, you know, and when people find those a year old on the shelf and they go, yes, you know, because it's already pre-aged for them. So, all right. Does anyone have any other questions for these guys? You guys all talked. Well, I got some questions. So, all right. So, <laughs> wheat beer. It, it, it's funny. I never thought of Bell's as wheat. I, I mean, I guess would be only. Really, I was exposed to it last winter. So what are some of the other other beers that you guys are making? We know the Two-Hearted IPA, but some of the other beers that are stronger that, that people identify with Bells. Well, I think our stouts, um, you know, we do five or six different stouts starting in October um, that show a different range of flavors. Expedition Stout certainly um, is one of the bigger the bigger ones certainly. Not who likes that. Yeah, I think in the beer enthusiast community. I think everybody at this table likes that one. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, so that's something that I think that we are really strong at. And then our amber ale is something that, um, that was really the, the beer that built the brewery. And as we shift to IPAs, I think it it is sort of lost favor with some of the, the beer community. But we talk about malt coming back, and I think that's one that is still strong for us. And we push to try to be stronger as well. So. I keep thinking people, yeah, I, th- I think that pale ales are coming back. It's been really interesting tasting these wheats because I, when I first started, and I know Justin used to work for Be United, the importer, always a core of my beer drinking were really good German beers, Bach beers, Doppelbox, Dunkel lagers, um, Dunkel Weissen beers. Um, 
that's how you got started, and I always think that's one reason we're buddies. But tell us about some some of those those German beers that you you drank and loved that, that were real malty. They might have been Box or something. Yeah, I mean, there was a pretty big range and um, the, you know totally different things. But I mean, my the first thing I want to do is go home and pour Schneider Weiss into this. Yeah, and, you know, see how it works out. And Schneider Schneider has that um, one, but. Mm-hmm. they have that like World War II recipe, the Edelweiss, which yeah. is the, which is also like nice malty, and then they have the Aventinas. Uh-huh. Yeah, and just the original classic. Schneiderweisses, you know, it's sort of grandfather of, of Hefeweizens. Um, it's a beauty, but yeah, I, I, I love those, and I'm, I am curious to try them. Yeah, and I had I had an Italer Curator, one of the Doppelbox last week, yep. and it was so different. I mean, it reminded me why wow, I love beer. There's so many styles, but it was like it was it was like malty sweet, and but it, it was so you know delicious. I don't know if you guys have anything like that in the works or if we, make a, we make a ton <laughs> of different beers. Of beer. <laughs> it's really I know. We, so the you know the the bells sort of seen is that we've got uh, we've got some beers that we're doing year round things like two hearted and amber and, and porter then we've got some beers that are seasonal so winter white the Oberon uh, we've got some things that kind of come out you know once a year uh, and, you know pop up and then there's stuff that come out of our pub downtown well, the pub downtown we're making an incredible range of beers down there so you know how far out these get uh, that that varies and most of the stuff made at the pub stays at the pub. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, what aren't we making? <laughs> you know. Yeah, I think we made last year um, on a, one of our big parties that we do. We tapped sixty three different beers in a day, so it's um, it's pretty fun for us. And I think ultimately we also try to be seasonal about it. I think there's one of the things I like. People always ask, "What's your favorite beer?" And it's hard to answer that question because beer is so seasonal. And I think for Bell's, we try to brew beers to drink in the season that you should drink them in as well. So Matthew, you want to wrap it up? Is anything else about this glass? So, I, was just so I saw you. I saw yeah, you. Like, is that called is, sniffing, or how do you? What do you describe that just, process? Just nose in the beer. Nose know? in beer. That was really nice. He was smiling. He had his nose in the beer, and well, um, color came over his face. I, I, I have <laughs> the, this. The service profession out here. I'm, and the the one thing I wanted to touch on because it's a big subject is uh, pairing of food and beer. Um, you know, I was in the wine background for a long time. As a sommelier, but when I was stretched to try to serve something with a certain course, oftentimes I would pick a beer, and oftentimes it would be a wheat or Hefeweizen in originally before I became introduced to American wheat. I'm, I'm interested to know because from what John said about the mouthfeel and this great um, kind of, um, I guess, creaminess from these proteins, how do you find this as a beer for pairing with food? Is it something you would push, recommend? Yeah. Uh Absolutely. I mean, I guess I have some experience in that, uh, working at Luxus, working on the pairings there. Uh, wheat is, I mean, when you talk about wheat in general, right, uh, you can include everything from Berliner to Lambic to Belgian wit to, you know, American wheat, uh, German hefe. So really it's a com- completely versatile ingredient. There's even wheat double IPAs that you could throw on there. Uh, so... But if you're talking, you know, winter white, Oberon, uh, kind of that more straightforward um, in the consumer realm of understanding what wheat is, then I, I really like it as sort of a light starter. Uh, we have a range of snacks that we do as our first course, and uh, you need something that's truly, really versatile that can, you know, play off earthiness or it could play off uh, acidity or, you know, whatever other bright flavors might come uh, in, in one snack to the next. And so wheat's really great for that. For me too. I mean, 
any when I had a, a pairing when I was in doubt, like a friend said, "What do we? What should I pair with wild Alaskan salmon?" I said, "You know, for me, when in doubt, a German wheat is what I would pair with food because I, I do feel like it, it's very food friendly." So I, I think that's a. I'm glad we had this conversation about wheat, which which is funny that from the glassware we're talking about wheat, and I think that we'll probably have a lot more talks about wheat beers this winter because it's it getting me turned on. It used to be one of my favorite styles, you know. And James, what about you? What, what are some wheat beers that, that you like? Oh, I mean, I think Schneider is obviously world class. So I like that one a lot. Um, I mean, going through the gamut, if you're talking about certain Berliner Weisses, I mean, Peak Skilder, they do a fine one, Simple Sour, which is which got a write up in the Times, and I guess now it's kind of got a little cult following as well. Uh, there's, you know, brewery in Michigan, Kalamazoo, that makes some decent wheat beers too. So. <laughs> Did we pop that just now? Was that Jolly? Is that Jolly Pumpkin? Calabaza Blanc is right. that? Yeah, that's, that's the other one. <laughs> right. I, I, we we had the uh, the Kalamazoo local bells here, and then it was uh, you know figured another Michigan brewery, mm-hmm. uh, Traverse City, um, Jolly Pumpkin. All right, and John, anything else you want to say about your book that's coming out? Uh, it, was, it was a blast to do. You know, I don't know. <laughs> it's 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 a blast to do. Uh, I learned a ton about malt. I hope people who read it do the same. When is it going to be out? Uh, I think mid December. December 10th. December 10th? Pre-order on it. Okay, all right, there you go. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Walt, the practical guide for field to brew house. And Justin, anything you want to say at the end of the no, show? thank you for having me. Nothing. You got a new place opening up maybe soon? Yeah, we'll talk about that next time. Another time, all right. <laughs> Brandon, congratulations on uh, Torska, the Michelin star. Thank you. So I think it was a big part to you. Your service that you give. And oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Chef, Chef Daniel Burns had nothing to do with it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. And Laura, th- nice to have you in New York City. Anything else you want to say about No, we just appreciate this? you taking the time to talk with us. So. Well, this is a really special show. It's, it's our second show with, with Matthew and, and Spiegel Out Glasses. And uh, I want to thank everyone for joining me. Uh, coming up soon in New York City, you know, New York City Beer Week is going to be in February. We've got a couple great things happening in December. There's a bunch of Belgian events. Uh, Mugsdale House, Jimmy's number 43 are doing uh, different Belgian events on uh, December 6th. So that, that's a good thing for our listeners to check out. I'd like to thank our sponsors at GreatBrewers.com who've helped to bring this podcast to you tonight. Thanks to Matthew, John, Laura, James, Brendan, and Justin. Did I get everybody? Yeah. All right. For joining me here on the Heritage Radio Network, I'm Jimmy Carboni. Thanks to our producers, Maggie Seiden and Justin Kennedy, and to our engineer, Jack Inslee. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time on Beer Sessions Radio. All right. Thanks for listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can email us with questions anytime at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.